you're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you browse homeowner reviews, compare quotes from multiple local pros, and even book a service instantly. So the next time you have a home project, just Angie that and start getting the most out of your home. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome to this podcast. I'm Chris Irving. That's pretty good, right? Yeah. I'm Matt Myra. Oh, I like it. And I'm Jonah Ray. Thanks for tuning in God to the Jonah's Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> wow, we got a lot of we got a lot of show ready for you guys, and uh, we're really excited to bring it to you. Okay, 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 Katie. What uh, what uh, what number is this? <laughs> Come on, it's, it's the crew. We got KK Katie, we got C Kyle. That's amazing. Oh man. That was so fun. That's so much better that than my is. intro. <laughs> the best. Oh. Uh, this is a hostful intro. Uh, anything you want to promote real quick while we're here? Any shows coming up or anything? Uh, when is this going up? Tomorrow. Oh. I just, yeah, oh yeah, please. what better, gift your friend Myra in the highway. It's only $1.99 and it makes an excellent uh, computer stuffer. Yeah, sure. Because um, it's yeah. <laughs> In a stuff it file. Yeah. yeah. Also, uh, you can uh, you can still buy the second pressing of my album, Hello, Mr. Magic Plain Person, Hello, available on Pink Marble Vinyl from AST Records. And uh, January 15th, the official first released release of um, uh, uh, Literally Figurative Records uh, vinyl version of Nick Youssef's album Stop Not Owning This. That'll be the first release. It's on vinyl. It's gorgeous. It's an amazing comedy album. I'm very, very proud and happy to be releasing Nick's album on vinyl. It's a fantastic record. My- Myra, what do you got? Uh, I would like to just say uh, go to audible.com forward slash feeb. Fair. And uh, yeah, listen to Feeb. Check out James Bonding. We just did a huge crossover episode with How Did This Get Made? Uh, View to a Kill. If you want to hear us tear that apart for quite a while, go for it. Excellent. And then um, <clears throat> I'm on the Fun Comfortable Tour starting mid January uh, Seattle, Portland, Vancouver. Um, New York, Chicago, Denver, a bunch of cities. Fun really tell which city you're really excited about. Funcomfortabletour.com. <laughs> <laughs> New York, Seattle, Vancouver. I did not you hijack when your you, promotional thing. You sorry, I'm sorry. Huh? When are you going to Vancouver? January. Oh, that's cold. Yeah. I highlighted Vancouver because that's the, one of the closest ones. Oh, I'm sorry. That's all right. It just seemed like you were more excited about that. Vancouver! Yeah, Denver, Chicago. Yeah, sorry about our crazy. I didn't mean to. Raggle, fraggle. That's all right. Raggle, fraggle. Raggle, fraggle, fraggle. This episode, 
did not turn up in Matt Myra's iCal, so he didn't know it was happening. But until... I found out about it on Instagram. Yeah, when I good. posted the picture, the picture of us with anyway, Martin Short. We actually, we went to Martin Short's house. It was awesome. He fucking made you coffee. He made me coffee. And it was pretty okay. But, you know, <laughs> more so was that his company was so good. Coffee, a lot to be desired. But the, but the company... Way better. Why are you shooting? I just I don't know. It's just, just a second part for me. But like <laughs> he was so great. He was so great. I just went to the conference. Was a little better. Yeah. But uh, Martin Short, amazing, very very warm and 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 willing to talk about everything. Yeah, and also what was really cool about him is he was a complete fan of like his friends and contemporaries, where he would tell funny stories about stuff they did or like you know Christopher Guest or something like that and he would uh, he was just very like like you, you could tell he, he likes his friends a lot and that was really cool but I think that's why he that's you know he's another one of those guys that wherever he is in a scene your eyes just go to him because he's a good he's good at establishing his own characters but he's also a good team player too yeah. well, so it never feels like he's trying to you don't feel like he's trying to dominate for attention he just Makes such great choices that you always are. You always want to watch. Yeah. Uh, his memoir, I must say, my life is a humble comedy legend, yeah. uh, is available now, and you should buy it. Yeah, it was great. So here's an, and um, hey, you know what? Maybe download the audio version by using audiblepodcast.com forward slash feed. It's a little feedback. What was this? Wait, hang on. I just want to hear your feedback again. <laughs> I'm a modem. <laughs> no, it sounded like two matchbook cars were driving. <laughs> uh, yes, Martin Short's book, I must say, My Life is a Humble Comedy Legend. Uh, I think we did a very good job not freaking out too much being uh, oh, being his patients. I nailed it. Yeah. I was actually just silent. I was so scared. Yeah. Fuck up. You know what's so funny? It's uh, There's like a couple of guys we've had on the show over the years where you, you kind of hear them before you see them. And uh, the first time we did Tom Hanks, like remember he was like, oh, yeah, he yeah, was yeah. riffing with somebody about some drink and then, he, yeah. and then he came in. Same thing with Mel Brooks where uh, we just yeah. we hear him bust into the room next and you just... There's all this energy and commotion, and same. It's like when we were walking up to um, Martin Short's place. You hear him on the phone, like, and just like, just kind of hear him being himself and all that energy as you walk in. I thought it was pretty cool. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And we're like we basically we just dropped into his environment, and he he acclimated uh, beautifully. Exactly. Yeah. So here's the next podcast number six thirteen with Martin Short. Now entering Nerdist.com. I think we started. Do I hold this like this? Yes. Okay. Martin Shorts. Yes, sir. It's amazing to be here. Get out of here. No, it is. Uh, I. Where are you? We're in your efficiency apartment in Palms. Which? Yeah. Um, Do you know a lot of people knock the Oakwood, but I think <laughs> I think that it, it has. First of all, every convenience is done. Yes. You, so I noticed your toilet is also the dishwasher, though. That seems strange. Yes, but, you know, I, I, I'm a light eater. Okay. <laughs> it's efficient. It's what it is. It is. Yeah. The Oakwood. You get new neighbors all the time? New yeah. kids trying to do it? And I have a dog, Reggie, who not only, you know, eating disorder a little bit, so yeah. he not only uh, 
uh, drinks but eats from the toilet bowl. So it, it's, it all it's, works out very nicely. You it's know, good. It's terrible. But, you know, it's, it's a lovely view of murders outside hey, from your apartment, I think too. So. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. It's fun. It makes you feel alive. It makes well, you, it makes you feel like... part of the scene. You don't want to be isolated <laughs> in Malibu or in the Palisades and stuff like that. And that's how you've... Remained humble all these years is forcing yourself to live a humble comedy legend. Humble comedy legend. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> congratulations on the book, by the way. Thank you. Uh, but we'll get to we'll get to that in a second. So many I asked Twitter for questions and people have questions, but this is more of a conversation than necessarily uh, an interrogation. And that's all the time we have. You were great. <laughs> Thank you so Thank much. You so much. It was good. Was that the coffee maker? Yes. That means my yeah. coffee. I just want people to know the kind of hospitality that we received coming to the first question. Do you want coffee? Do you want you made coffee for Jonah? We got water. Uh, we're very comfortable right now. Also, I said shoes off. Yeah. Carpets have been cleaned. Mm-hmm. And why do we need to wear all this clothing? So we're sitting here. Yeah. I, uh, we're free. Let's just say it, Commando. Yeah, we're totally free, <laughs> and I want people to picture that the entire time they're listening uh-huh. to this to this, this, this podcast. But they could do themselves a favor and not picture me naked. They right? could, yeah, especially if they have a meal in the next <laughs> little while. I just uh, yeah. yeah, we can put a thing in, up front, right? Say don't eat before listening. Just yeah. lightly caress the funnel cake that you're eating uh, <laughs> if you're in a specific part of the country. Uh-huh. It's very difficult for. It's hard not to flip out a little bit. I mean, you know, and I don't want to make it awkward. It was too late. Shit! (laughs) (laughs) And we're naked! But, uh, I mean, when you meet someone who is very influential to your comedy development, it's very... I always feel like I'm on a date with a girl who's going out with me as a favor. And then it's just like, oh, you're nice. I'm like, I really like you a lot. You know, like, it's just very awkward. But how do you... Do you see yourself as someone who's been influential in comedy? Do you see? Do you do you do you do you connect to that in any way, or do you still feel like the same person as when you first started out? Uh, yeah, the latter. You know, I, I certainly understand intellectually um, that if you've been around for a while, that of course you you know when you meet because I always think if you meet people that were uh, influential to you when you were like fifteen and under. Mm-hmm. Those are the people that kind of blow your mind a little bit. I, I appreciate that. You know, I was friends with Mike Nichols, uh-huh. and for 25 years I knew Mike, and yet I never was in his company or I, at dinners where I would go to myself, I am with Mike Nichols. This is insane. <laughs> you know, you never. Um, but I will say that I don't think if you are someone who has continued to you know, fight the wars of show business, I don't think you ever have that perspective of, I've made it. Right. I don't think you do. I think that every new thing you take on, you're in a very healthy way convinced you will fail. And that um, daunting mountain is what motivates you. Right. Uh, you know, I was, a couple of years ago, I was interviewed for Vanity Fair, and this the guy who was writing it said... Um, Something to the effect of, how does it feel you parodied people in Hollywood and, and, and then you became this person? And I said, what do you mean? Well, I mean, you, because you became, oh, I don't think so. And he didn't buy that. He didn't buy that. And I said, like, someone like Larry David uh, doesn't walk around saying, I, I, I'm Larry David. And the, and the guy said, are you sure? So I phoned up Larry afterwards <laughs> and told him this. He, is that guy fucking nuts? <laughs> because Larry is like... Anyone who's everything he does that's brand new, 
he's filled with anxiety. If I could press a button, I'd get out of it. They're going to, you know. And I think that's the healthy way to be. Do you think it's, a, do you think it's superstitious? I mean, like, do you think it's superstitious to say, well, if I don't feel this certain amount of anxiety, then this thing is going to fail uh, because of hubris or patterns or, or just the just – the, because you, we, it's, there's so few things to hold on to in this business in particular that you feel secure about. And so it's finding – I think that's why people get so weirdly superstitious about things. It's like they're just trying to hold, feel like they have some sense of control over a, an uncontrollable business. Well, I, for me, it's always been like if I'm prepared, I feel better. And if I'm unprepared, I'm not. So if I'm on you know, a talk show or something, I'm thinking about that for weeks in advance. Uh, Steve Martin three months ago said, phoned me up randomly and said, uh, hey, tell me if you think this joke is funny. And I said, what's coming up? Oh, I, I'm doing Letterman in two months. <laughs> in two months. And this is Steve Martin. You know, it's, it's not like that's going to make or break it all for him. But the reason he's Steve Martin is because of that kind of um, instinct and work ethic, I think. And, but I don't know. It seems like you have a healthy dose of it and not – I mean, you know, comedy can be – <laughs> Comedy can be a mentally crippling affliction <laughs> to some people. Yeah. Well, I, it's the Canadian I think, thing. I think, I think it's Canadian, but also, you know, I, I, I was like, I was never a stand-up. Right. I came from Second City, and before that, I was an actor. I'm still an actor, but I'm so I thought of myself more of as a character actor who did comedy primarily. But um, so, and also, I never, I was never. You know, if the audience didn't like me, if I went out there and if I do a show or somewhere and they, I bomb, um, I don't then go to my hotel room and look in the mirror and say, you're not worthy. <laughs> I say, mm, Papa's going to do some writing <laughs> because, you know, 1,200 people aren't wrong. But I, I don't take it personal. I, the admiration of strangers is nothing, is not what motivated me to do this. It's just it was a cool way to make a living. It's, it's, and... And you get to meet the most fun people in the world. Well, I was reading online that you were in a production of Godspell in college that had no, not college. It was my first professional. It was job. your first professional post college, yeah. So if so, if this is if this if what I was reading is correct, in this production was Victor Garber, you, Dave Thomas, Andrea Martin, Gilda Radner, Eugene Levy, Eugene Levy, like in one fucking production, and and. The, it was a production of Godspell. So I had done four years university, and I thought, okay, I, I'll try acting for a year. I'll give myself a year contract. And if it doesn't work out, then I'll go back to school. And uh, so when I was still in school, they had this Godspell, this show had just opened in New York, and it was a big hit. And now they were doing its first you know, sister company doing in Toronto. Everyone wanted it. I mean, it, so they had auditioned about 1,000 people, narrowed it down, and then they had a callback for about 300 people. And it was like American Idol. You know, there were groups of 10. You'd get up and improvise and then sing. And then they'd, you'd say, they'd say, come back in an hour. And it was now down to a smaller group. And um, they whittled, whittled it down. It was a cast of 10 to all the people you mentioned, Gilda. And, and I remember Gilda got up. I'd never met Gilda. And she was wearing bib overalls. She had pigtails out to the side. And she sang zippity doo <laughs> And she was, you know, 
marching around the stage, you know, zippity doo da zip. And I thought, oh, that's the saddest thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's like, you know, it's, it's going to Bellevue or something. <laughs> and then they quickly stood up and said, you're hired. And I went, oh, 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 I got to rethink what I was going to do. And, uh, but they picked Gilding, Eugene, as I say, and Andrea and, and Victor Garber. But the cool thing was uh, this hip little piano player came in and he played for his girlfriend. And Stephen Schwartz, who would later write Wicked and all these things, hated his rehearsal pianist because he couldn't play rock and roll. So he went up to the, to the guy who was Paul Schaefer <laughs> and said, um, I'm going to fire my rehearsal pianist. Can you take over? And Paul said, absolutely. You know, he's about to go back and be a law student. And, but he couldn't read music. But he, he's always been a computer so he would just pretend to be reading the music as they'd put it down because most people when they audition, it's something from, you know, hair or something. Right. So he was able to fake his way through all this Holy uh, shit. Stuff. And he was made musical director. And even then he looked like the, you know, Mater D in a spaceship. I mean, he had... <laughs> <laughs> but it was an amazing thing and we did it for a year. So for a year... You're now like you're still in university, but you're now in professional show business in Toronto, and every casting agent and every person is seeing this show. And but also the hang back days was like Danny Aykroyd was around trying to get a job and John Candy and Jesus. pretty cool group. How what was Gilda like? I was uh, uh, we started going out, and I was 22, and she was 26. Oh, slightly older lady. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I adored. I mean, I still, I have it. I have it in rotation. The let's talk dirty to the animals. Yeah. I mean, she was, she wasn't. That that era was so fertile for for comedy and sketch comedy, and it was so, it was so. I mean, I I'm, I know there was sketch comedy before that era, but there was something about that particular era which all of a sudden all this life became infused. You know, Steve Martin always said that when he was in Aspen, he lived in Aspen for a while. At, at, you know. This is like 75, when Saturday Night Live premieres. You know, he was always touring, so he figured, like, I've got to live somewhere. So he was living in Aspen for a year and a half. And he said he watched Saturday Night Live and thought to himself, ah, they figured it out. In other words, someone figured out a way to tap all this comedy out there that was just working in clubs or, you know, Lemmings for National Lampoon Show or Steve as a stand-up or trying to create a new thing. Because up until then, television was, when you saw stand-up comedians, they were, you know, how about dating? And, you know, it was yeah. all those Alan King and those classic guys that were on Ed Sullivan or Johnny Carson. I mean, it is funny. Is it, you know, SNL is such an institution now, but, there, but at the time, it really was uh, super, like, it was dirty and, and raw and rough around the edges. I mean, not, and... You know, that's why they were called the Not Ready for Not Ready for Primetime Players. players. Yeah. I mean, that, that first season of SNL, not every sketch is a home run. Like, there are sketches where it's, where, I mean, you think of it as like, oh, that was when SNL was really, and it's like, you know, they were still trying to figure it Absolutely. out that, that, that first season. Yeah. But it's amazing that it actually, I mean, I, that's, that's where I discovered Steve, and that's where I discovered comedy, and uh, and my parents let me watch it. Uh, hip parents, they were super hip parents, and then when it's and then it dwindled, but then your season brought it back. I mean, that is, I swear to God, I'm not saying this because you're sitting in front of me, but that season 
of uh, you and Chris Guest and Billy, like that was such an amazing Harry Shear and Harry Shear. Uh, I mean, I ha- I have all my original VHS tapes. Oh yeah, from that like. Jackie Rogers Jr.'s $100,000 jackpot wad and all the Joe Franklin shows yeah, and, yeah, like, yeah. everything. I still have I still have all of it with the original commercials. I think it was interesting. Um, you know, in my book, I talk about, and now it's been a little bit misinterpreted as the things can be, when, you know, when you do these interviews, that, uh, so you hated Saturday Night Live, did you? It was hell. It wasn't hell. But we all had a one-year contract because we had all redone things. You know, I had been on SCTV for three years. Billy Crystal was Billy Crystal. He'd had his own variety show on NBC, Primetime. Yeah. And Chris Guest and Harry were already legendary from their work. But that summer, uh, this is Spinal Tap had come out. So we had a one-year contract. And by nature of that, it made you feel like you were doing 22 90-minute specials every week. Mm-hmm. So you didn't feel like you could just kind of coast. You didn't feel like, I'm going to be here for seven years. Okay, I didn't have anything this week. It's cool. You, so even after the first three shows, which had been, you know, gone pretty well for me, as a cast member, we had a week off. I went back to Toronto. We also had a new baby. And I just came back and said to Dick Ebersol, who was the Lorne Michaels right. then, I said, um, Dick, I'd like to quit. And, and I don't see it as a problem because I haven't cashed any checks yet. <laughs> you know, being pretty economically savvy. And he kind of like looked at me and said, is this a joke? I said, no, I'm not that happy here. You know, it was just so much. Uh, I found the pressure. I hadn't figured out how to do it. And I was putting a lot of pressure on myself because now even if it, the fact that it had gone well the first three shows, it was like, how do I top that? And uh, by, he, he smartly said, Hang until Christmas. If you're still unhappy, I'll let you out. Because he knew, as he later told me, by Christmas I'd figure it out. And so it really was just one season. Yeah. And, and so, but, but, but in my head, it felt like three or four seasons because it, the characters, everyone on the show, like, it, like everyone had characters that became sort of like canon that it feels like it was longer to me than that. But I guess it really, it, it really wasn't. Yeah, just one. But SCTV... Were you essentially – well, Rick Moranis was on the podcast a couple of years ago, and he basically was just talking about how, well, you guys are just up in rural Canada and, and were isolated from – Yeah, but I was an interloper in SCTV. I came late. So I never went to Edmonton. What he's talking about, they shot in Edmonton. They moved to Toronto? Then they moved back to Toronto. They started off in Toronto, went to Edmonton, moved back to Toronto. And by the time I joined it, it was already a hit. It was, you know, had won Emmys and stuff like that. And so – uh, I, I joined it for the last three 90-minute shows uh, in the spring of 82, and then I did another season on NBC, and then we did another season after that on Cinemax. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Yeah. So was uh, how long were you in Second City? Second City stage, two years, uh, SCTV, two and a half years. And did, did a lot of the characters develop at Second City? That, that... No, only Ed Grimley. Right. Ed Grimley. He was... Uh, he started off there. I mean, it was, it was a scene. I, I replaced John Candy on stage. And the one thing you know is you don't try to do what John did. No. Because no one could do what John did. Really. I mean, he just, I mean, tried duplicating John Candy's performance in Planes, Trains. You'd be insane, you know, to remake that and try to do John Candy. He was a genius. And he was unique in his ability to be 
funny and 100% heartbreakingly sincere. So even in, on stage at Second City, the one thing I learned right away from Second City was you didn't have to go for the laughs. If you just sincerely played someone uh, and didn't try to be funny but play, got within that character, then it could be funny. So there was a guy in school uh, when I was in high school. And he wanted to be a photographer. He always was taking a lot of slides. <laughs> and I'd say, Sean, did you take any pictures this weekend? Yeah, I took a lot of, about three rolls of slides. But uh, I'm not going to develop them because, like, I took them. So, like, why would I have to waste the money? And you go, hmm, i got to remember this. <laughs> and so uh, there was a piece in Second City when I joined uh, uh, in March of 77, and it's called Sexist. It was a piece that John had been in. It was like two people applying for the same job. One, a really, like, dim guy, and one was a very qualified woman, played by Catherine O'Hara. And uh, uh, Peter Ackroyd, Danny's brother, was also playing the job uh, interviewer. And um, so I just made him Ed Grimley. And then I'd put a little, little grease in my hair, and one night uh, P- Peter Ackroyd said, geez, Marty, that, that, that point is getting bigger and bigger. So as a joke, I put it right up like that. <laughs> And the audience laughed, and I thought, wait a second, isn't that what I'm trying to do? So I kept the point. You know, it's just stuff like that. Oh, wow. Just acts, it's just those happy accidents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But do, do you ever, I mean, when you're in a group of uh, performers where everyone seems to have a pretty strong point of view, and everyone's tool bag is pretty uh, robust, how do you, do you, are you looking around and going, okay, well, they do this and they do this, so here's what I do? Or do you, I mean, like, are you trying to find your place in comparison to, to complement the group? Or are you just kind of doing your own thing and letting it fit well, in? Well, I think you kind of end up doing your own thing. Catherine always, O'Hare always said I was the first one to have my own water dish, which I could come in and change my hairdo. No one was, like, doing that that much. You know, that was the era where Chevy Chase would play Gerald Ford just by saying, I'm Gerald Ford. Yeah. Right. And, uh, but... You know, we had all known each other. Again, this is now 1977 I'm talking about, Second City. I'd known John since 72, so we were all friends. We all partied together. We all had, you know, uh, it wasn't like, so it wasn't like that situation where you're trying to follow someone and you're scared to even meet them. You mm-hmm. know, it wasn't that. What were the differences between working in uh, on Canadian television versus American television? Because if, if, if SNL was somewhat of an oppressive environment in terms of like the amount of output were there were there more content restrictions in America less content restrictions or how no, it wasn't how that. involved it was, was it the was network? purely it was purely just the simple fact that SCTV didn't have an audience so we would write for 6 weeks you'd shoot for 6 weeks and if you didn't have an idea during that writing session of 6 weeks maybe the first week you just don't have any ideas it's cool cuz you'd make up for it the second week Saturday Night Live, you can kill Saturday night. But come Monday morning, if you're a writer, actor on the show, you don't have any ideas, you feel like a failure. And whether you like it or not, Wednesday, the read-through comes, and if you don't have anything and no one's written anything, you're not in the show. So that's a different kind of pressure. What's great is that live from New York, it's, you know, there's an energy and you, it's unmatchable. But SCTV had an advantage. It didn't have that advantage but if you were doing a film parody 
thought it was going to be hilarious, shot it, five minutes long, you look at it, doesn't work. <laughs> hey, but this can be a really brilliant two-minute movie promo parody. And that's the advantage SCTV had. Because you're basically doing it, I mean, you, it's kind of interesting to shoot a sketch show without ostensibly the key element, which would be an audience, to know how to, because ultimately you're coming off the stage. You're yeah, but it was a- good because the, suddenly the, 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 sometimes, y- you know, you'll do things on Saturday Night Live and you'll think it's a funny idea, and it is a funny idea, but if the audience isn't laughing, it's cut. Right. And SCTV, the judges of that were the cast and writers. So we were playing to ourselves. And, you know, you never could have created a character like Jackie Rogers Jr. He was too bizarre. Um, but he could exist in SCTV. And actually, then he did work in SNL because he had so much energy. Energy works great on SNL. But I remember when I was doing, it was actually the same show as Jackie Rogers Jr., $100,000 jackpot wad. And uh, Dick Blasucci and Paul Flaherty, brother of Joe, were guest writing. Uh, they would do that. They'd have guest writers for a week. Mm-hmm. And we wrote the Jackie game show together. But we wrote this other piece. And the premise was, what if Lucille Ball came back for one more show? And I was playing Lucy. I remember this. Well, you couldn't have, and you must have got you read about it because it got cut. But didn't you? Didn't you do a character? Didn't you do that character? Oh, that was oh that Rusty. That yes, was, yes, that was yes, different. yes, yes, yes. But this was Lucy, actual Lucy. And the premise was, it was like, look who's married, Harry. And the premise is she's playing Bess Truman, married to Harry Truman. That's how obscure this was. <laughs> <laughs> and Mary Gross is playing uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, and we're wallpapering the Oval Office before the boys get home. And I am telling you, this bombed at dress on a level. It was just <laughs> that thing. <laughs> and I remember I said to Chris Guest afterwards, Jesus, they could have at least flashed the applause sign. He said, no, they did, Martin. <laughs> 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 Chris, by the way, is the funniest man in the world. I, when I was making uh, this film, Captain Ron, and he, yes. said, he said, Martin, uh, he always calls me Martin, what um, are you making? I said, well, I'm making a film called Captain Ron. Yes, what's it about? I said, well, I play a man who has two children who inherits a boat. He said, I didn't say spoil it for me. <laughs> <laughs> So, so that <laughs> the best Truman sketch, the Lucy cut. sketch gets cut. Bond, I'm in a red wig, uh, the skirt. It was just something. Did you ever meet Lucy? Uh, y- y- no, not really. You never met her? No. We're shooting. I, this, I do a show for Comedy Central, and we're in the original I Love Lucy stage. I thought she was like, you know, it's, you know, it's interesting. People say about SCTV, which, and again, I can brag about it because I came late, that it's amazing how these sketches stand up. You know, and uh, I have three kids and my daughter would, you know, when she was 12, like just be watching Lucy as if it was just made yesterday. And again, one of the gimmicks was that because she was such a good actress. Yeah. She's a great comedian, but she acted though. She was like a real pioneer in that stuff. And also there was something about, um, I mean, these shows were written for a bit. I mean, everyone was watching the same like three shows. Yeah. And so they, they had to. They were written very broad, but also it was, you know, it was a relatively new medium at that time, and so it was really vibrant, but they really, 
because I think a lot of people think of old comedy as like, oh, we've innovated since then. You go back and you're like, oh, no, we're no, not, not really. No, no, not really. Yeah, not really. Uh, who other what other comedy legends or what other people have you met that have kind of crippled you emotionally because you can't believe you're meeting them? Who do you who do you freak? Well, out over? again, I think it's anyone that you meet um, that when you're a kid and they're fan. Johnny Carson. When I first met Johnny, that was like, are you kidding? me? Was he nice to you? He was really nice. I was like a, 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 an idiot because I thought, you know, from about 1982 on, I'm on SCTV, and I'd be on Dave Letterman's show. And I thought it was hip to only do Dave Letterman. Right. You know? Um, and I now can look back on it and say part of it was because I was scared to do Johnny Carson. So let's say from that time on until I would first do Johnny Carson, which is January of 88. I could have done Johnny Carson before, but, um, but I didn't because I'd say, oh, um, you know. Then there was a rumor that he was leaving uh, in 88. He didn't. And I thought, what am I? Am I insane? Oh, my God. Am I stupid? And I then did Johnny Carson in January of 88. And it, he it was the greatest experience of my life. He was so funny, and he was so loose, and he'd have that laugh, you know. He just really laughed. It wasn't anything fake going on. And be, then between that time, and he left in 92, I did it eight times. Oh, wow. It was great. But I did meet Johnny before that at a card game. Um, there was a famous card game that a bunch of famous guys would do, and it was... Steve Martin and Chevy Chase and Neil Simon and Barry Diller <laughs> and uh, Johnny Carson, uh, a, a producer named Dan Melnick. And they would all, they'd like play poker, then they'd have dinner, and then they'd play poker. And they'd switch homes. And Steve said, um, I think it was Dan Melnick isn't able to make it. Do you want to fill in? And I said, oh, Steve, this is, this is like 1986 or something, uh, seven. And I said, no, that's too rich for my blood. I can't. Uh, uh, he said, no, 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 no. He said, it's fine. He said, the most anyone's ever lost is $600. And by the way, you could win $600. So I go there. I'm, you know, again, doing an impersonation of someone relaxed. <laughs> Johnny couldn't be sweeter, more charming. And I'm playing, and within... Eight minutes, I'm down $1,400. <laughs> <laughs> and my heart is beating like a little rabbit. And I kept thinking, okay, if I just fold, if I always fold, I'll only be out the ante. I'd get four aces fold, you know. <laughs> but anyway, then we went to dinner. Then we had a dinner. And I'm sitting between Steve and Johnny Carson. And Steve says something funny. And I had a mouthful of mashed potatoes. And I went... <laughs> And I had the sensation that mashed potatoes had flown out of my mouth. <laughs> but I had no idea where it had landed. And I'm kind of <laughs> scanning the table. And I look down, and it's on Johnny's, uh, the palm of his hand. <laughs> and I thought, well, I'm not mentioning it. And uh, <laughs> then I looked away, and I looked back, and it was gone. So I just assumed he ate it. <laughs> You know, which I was honored to That's preach same, you Johnny's food. That's the same food. assumption. Yeah. When one of your idols eats the mashed potatoes, yeah. you spit on them. But then, and, then, and then I did his show, and uh, he, he was just great. 
Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, because because they, they're they're you know uh, some people are like oh he was not personable and tense and, and and like off when he was off camera he could be a yeah totally but different but this guy. was oh you mean at the poker game no he was he was lovely oh good yeah good I uh oh it's oh. a clock it's a clock what's happening boy you don't get out much it's Is called it the a clock oh the Russians are coming <laughs> no 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 it's just a oh, clock oh, okay. All right. It's the Oakwood clock. <laughs> it's time for everyone to come out. Yeah. There's no room run. for the couch because of the grandfather clock you put in the... Yeah, well, that's the, they let all the tenants know that it's at a certain point at noon, it's time for the communal sponge bath. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> where it's sort of a tandem thing where everyone bathes each other. They don't have to, but we like to. Yeah, of yeah. course. When you, yeah. you're just being neighborly. you got to meet people somehow. <laughs> I had a... <laughs> I, I had, you know, Steve was... Uh, Steve Martin was... Hack. <laughs> Steve was the, you know, the the reason that I started doing stand up. Like my parents bought me all his albums in the seventies, and I had a moment. In it was in Aspen actually for the Aspen Comedy Festival, and that was still a thing, where he was in the St. Regis, and I ran up to him breathless, and in my head I wanted to say something very eloquent, but it just came out this like avalanche of, <laughs> which since you know having read his book, yeah. Realize that that just makes the shields go up, and it was not, uh, you know, it was not a. Uh, I, I don't know how I could have done it better. You know, I, I don't think anyone's to blame uh, when you go up and meet someone who's you admire. I mean, I remember, like, I remember it was 19, I don't know. I wasn't like in the States, but I was a Canadian actor, and Shirley MacLaine was appearing at the O'Keefe Center, the big center there. And uh, I knew one of the producers, and they said, oh, you can come back and meet Shirley MacLaine. So uh, my girlfriend then, uh, who became my wife, and I go back, and I have, I'm thinking, I'm going I'm to figure this one out. I'm going to be cool. I'm gonna, so I planned exactly what I would say. And I thought I would give her this little complimentary speech. She would say, thank you, and she'd move on to the next person. So now we're in this little row. She comes up to me. I say, Miss McLean, I knew you were a brilliant actress, but as an entertainer, you've blown me away, and it was really exciting to see you. And I thought she'd say thank you, move on, but she didn't. She said, yeah, but, you know, there was so much reverb. I mean, I, I, I find myself <laughs> being really thrown by it. I mean, didn't that bother you at all? And I said, thank you. <laughs> she kind of looked at me. And you went to the next person. I thought, okay, you know what? I, I shouldn't be let out. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's this syndrome that everyone falls in. Well, at least you didn't chase her down and then try to explain. like sometimes you can try to make up for it. I yeah. mean, that situation where you're yeah. like, you know, earlier when I said this, because, of course, in your head, you can't possibly fathom that that person is not thinking about the experience they had with you, but they're not. No, uh, no. But, you know, like trying to make up. Yeah, okay, so you said this thing, and then they'll usually go, what are you talking about? And then it's just like, it's a, it's a, it's a hole that just begins to dig very, I very mean, deep. I, you know, you understand on both sides. On the, on, on the person who's a fan side, it's an amazing thing to meet someone that... that was influential in their in in your development, uh, and for the other person, the celebrity, they're going, you know, I got I got to make a plane, and I have a life here, and I you know, I got to keep moving. I remember one time I was in an airport, and I had I have three kids, and they were all little then, they were like f- four and two and a baby. My wife was in New York, and I'm trying to make this flight, and I'm late, and I got kids all over me in bags. 
And this woman comes up, and she has five pieces of paper. She said, you got to sign these. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, no, sorry, I can't do it. And as I'm walking away, she screams out, and I heard you were nice. <laughs> and I thought, that's fine. That's going to be her dine-out story. You know? yeah. Oh, he's a prick. I met him. And whatever. But you had to get your kid. But you, as a father, had to get. And your by the way, I don't care what you thought because I don't know her. <laughs> <laughs> That's a healthy attitude. Yeah. Well, um, what were some what were some things on SCTV that you had always wanted to do, but for whatever reason were never able to materialize? Or did you do you feel like on that show you did everything that you wanted to do? Well, I don't know if you did everything you wanted to do because you know you could. I would have stayed with it. Forever, I'd still be on SCTV. We were just canceled, you know. I would never have moved to Saturday Night Live if there was still an option to do SCTV. It was unbelievably ideal. It was, you're working with your friends. Andrew Martin is my sister-in-law. Right. Eugene and Dave I'd gone to university with. I'd known that Catherine Harrison, she was 17. Jeez. You know what I mean? It was, Joe Flaherty was like, we call him the anchor. He was, the, you know, he came up with Brian Doyle Murray, brother of Bill, uh, in 73, and they started the first, uh, again, sister company of Chicago, Second City, in Toronto. And they did the hiring. They hired Gilda, Eugene, uh, John Candy, Danny Aykroyd. They hired them uh, for the first company in Second City, Toronto. Joe was the director. He was the, everyone, you know, and, and Brian, genius. So um, by the time I was working on SCTV, I'd known these people a long time, and you, you got to do, you know, you'd do everything, you know. I, 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 if someone said, I remember someone wrote uh, a piece, Gore Vidal and Norman Mailer had been in a legendary fight at a party in New York, in real life. And so they had written it as a sketch where Eugene would play Norman Mailer. We'd get into a fight in New York and it would become a Tide commercial because he'd throw wine on me, which, which, Gore Vid- <laughs> which Norman Mailer had done to Gore Vidal. So they say to you, me, hey, Marty, can you do Gore Vidal? And I go, sure. I've never done Gore Vidal. So you go home, and you start listening to tapes of Gore Vidal. And what I would do is I'd take the script that I hadn't written, someone else had written, but I, and then I'd type out a, a conversation pattern with Gore Vidal. And when you do that, you realize that certain people naturally have, uh, or certain things, and I would transpose those ahs into the existing script, memorize that, I'd have a Walkman in those days. Listen, listen, listen. And just before a take, throw it off, run on, do the impersonation. We do another take, hear it again, run on. And then you kind of get it, but the next day you can't do Gore Vidal. But what we would do in SCTV is after every take, the cast would, we wouldn't just do a second take. We'd then go over, see a playback. Because the cast controlled that show. We had a great director, John Blanchard, but we control the show. So you'd look at the playback, and Candy would say, oh, I see what's going on. Yeah, uh, I'm too big. Marty, you should go bigger on that. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And w- oh, what if I hit my knee when walking? Okay, let's do another take. And that's what you do it. So it was like making a movie. Oh, wow. You know, one time they had said, uh, in SCTV, they said, okay, we don't have, uh, we only have two hours to shoot a sketch. So, it, it, you know, and we were cl- shutting down for the season. So um, if anyone has a sketch that can be shot in two hours, write it and we'll pass. So I wrote this sketch with my brother Michael, 
It was called Whatever Happened to Baby Ed. And it was based on the movie Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, uh, which was about two crazy sisters, one in a wheelchair, who had been uh, former stars, and the one not in the wheelchair, who was Betty Davis in the movie, is tormenting the one in the wheelchair, Joan Crawford. So in our sketch, uh, I was Ed Grimley in a wheelchair, and Skip Grimley, my tormenting brother, was John Candy. (laughs) And it was to be a movie parody. But because of the time constraints, they shot it like a sitcom. So it was like three cameras. So it's a really funny script. We shoot it. We go back. We look at the playback. It doesn't work. And we don't quite understand. We shoot it again. It doesn't work. And then John Candy and myself and Michael, my brother, realized, oh, I get it. We're doing a movie parody, but we're shooting it like a sitcom. We have to shoot this one camera overhead, which meant that it wasn't going to be two hours. It's going to be a five-hour shoot. And then we just saw the director, John Blanchard, who was on our side, have a fight with the line producer about it. And then John and I just wandered away. And John said, I love these battles because we always win. <laughs> and, and we did because the creative always won on that show. That's why the show was so bright. Do you like playing just a regular guy ever or do you really need like a do you really need to find like a hook a way in to there was a soap opera on SCTV called Days of the Week mm-hmm. that Eugene would write and he wrote me the blandest character named Billy McKay and it was a totally straight character and I couldn't find any hook into that character <laughs> at all in fact Joe Flaherty as Rocco in the series at one point in one of the scenes that he said oh look at you Billy McKay with your bland quality because he was basically commenting on my performance. Because I, you know, so you, yeah, you can play that, but it's, it's kind of maybe a waste. But I mean, like, so, you know, so a movie like Inner Space, which I loved, you could have just, they could have, like, you could have just been a regular guy, but he still had specific hooks about him that made him, without being a big character, he still, he still was a character. Yeah, you do have to, that's kind of different. Now you're in the movies. Right. And you, if you're playing someone, Real, sincere, you, have to, you can't be looking at the camera and mugging. It, it will be irritating. Um, so you have to find that balance. And um, the more interesting version of that was when I made the film Father of the Bride, because that was a sincere movie, but the character of the wedding planner, Frank, was, you know, he was heightened. And I remember the uh, director, Charles Shire, and the writer, and they were this, uh, Nancy Myers, and they were they co-wrote it, and Charles directed it. They were understandably concerned, like how would this character fit into that movie? And um, I remember I, I I kept thinking that if he's, we can go as broad as we want, but if he's if I'm sincere and not trying to be funny, it'll be fine. Because you go into life and you pick up your shirts, and the guy I couldn't get a stain and out out of this shirt, Miss Short. He's not trying to be funny, and he's wearing madras pants and bare midriff and the guts out <laughs> and a bad kind of, you know, hairdo. And he's not trying to be funny, but he's funny. So uh, I remember in that film, we shot a lot of sizes. You know, it would be very like that, that you could not attend him. And then it would be a little less, a little less, a little less, just to find the balance of what was acceptable. And then after I made that film, I remember I went to a, a real rich person's wedding, 
and they had a wedding coordinator whose initials of his name were embroidered on his shoes. And I thought, mm-hmm. well, I didn't go that broad. <laughs> <laughs> Is it kind of like what you were talking about earlier, though, with uh, when you were doing Second City and just uh, like playing playing the scene as more uh, more than trying to get the laugh? It's like when you find like it's like let it's like it's written funny and it's a, it's like a funny character to so just let it be. As yeah, I mean, to, uh, you know, uh, I'll tell you who was spectacular at that. By the way, everything he does, because he is kind of Mozart, but it's Bill Murray. Bill, I, I can't think of one thing he's ever done where I couldn't believe that that person could exist in life. Yeah. And, um, you know, he's an alumni of Second City. Exactly. It is, because every character, even like, even Clifford, it's still, like, he's super, the character's super sincere. Yes. Even though... Yeah, so he's so, a tormentor. Yeah, so you, I think that, you know, that's that's the trick of it. You know, it's I, I, or even when you impersonate people, you have to. If you're doing, you know, a famous person, you have to do it like a Hirschfeld sketch. You have to <laughs> celebrate not only what's maybe uh, off-putting about them, but what's also why they're legendary. If you don't include that part, then the other part doesn't make sense. I even loved, and for the for for years, I would use as a screen name for thing uh, for stuff online uh, Nathan Thurm, which is such a great character. And I so wanted more of him, but I only remember the only sketch I remember Nathan Thurm from was the one where they were recalling all of the yeah, sixty minutes parody. The sixty minutes that was parody. the first Nathan Thurm piece, and then um, but he would show up in the news if there was like if you know some scan like he would have shown up uh, you know defending the nfl you know um but that was based on a real person at saturday night live this makeup artist very defensive you'd sit in her makeup chair and you'd say gee marion i i I, am i too pale for the i know that you don't think i know that i know that i'm a makeup artist i would know that (laughs) and uh and then about a month later we're writing this piece billy and chris and harry and i and it's a satire of 60 minutes and we need that defensive lawyer we need that lawyer you know to play and i was going to play that character and i didn't know who to play and billy crystal said why don't you play marion siebert you do her behind her back all the time anyway <laughs> and i said she'll find out ah they she won't find it they never find out he said and uh and then i shot it and i'm behind a desk and harry shear is playing mike wallace and he's cross-examining me but i forgot of course that marion would be there because she was the makeup artist so it would be like, you know, Mike would say, Harry is Mike Wallace would say, well, Mr. Thurm, uh, do you feel that's an appropriate thing for a lawyer to do? I'd say, I know that. You don't think I know that? I'm a lawyer. I would know that. The director would go, cut, he's sweating. And Marion would say, I know that. You don't think I know that? <laughs> it was, and she, but she never? No, she never, <laughs> she never found out. And then, and then I did it many times. I was always panicked that I'd be caught. And then the last show, her assistant got drunk at the party, told her, don't you get it? Everyone knows you're Nathan Thurm. Oh, shit. And she confronted me, and she said, I thought you were my friend. I said, I am your friend. You know, I just, I, I'm so caught. I said, but you know, Arian, impersonation is the highest form of compliment. <laughs> And she said, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well, then we're cool. <laughs> Everything's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How much, uh, how much improv do you throw in? So, I mean, 
when I watch Three Amigos, I'd think, oh, well, they were riffing and fucking around, and but how... You know, it's hard to remember. That was a really strong script written by uh, Steve and Lorne Michaels and Randy Newman. Um, you know, and, and, and they're brilliant writers. You do, you know, John Landis would have us do it as written, then say, screw around. And then they edit it all together, so you can't really... You'd have to have the script and the film and see... Which line? I remember the, um, there's a scene with me talking to little children about um, my experience as a child star and how thrilling it was to meet Dorothy Gish. And that was all improvised. And it was so improvised that the studio actually didn't want to put in the movie because they said it felt out of keeping. With, it felt too improvised. And John Landis said, you know, it's staying in. He, he got very... Strong about that, and I'm glad he did. Did you guys figure out who your characters were going to be? I mean, it's like Ned was super sincere, and Steve was kind of self-obsessed, and Chevy was kind of a dick in the movie. I think that we just kind of... um, First of all, I was like, you know, there have been nine versions of who I would be, and none of those people were available, so they got the cheap amigo. Uh, Because I had, again, I hadn't made a movie. I was just in Saturday Night But I remember the first... You know, we shot a lot of stuff that never made it. A lot of stuff in Hollywood, you know, before we go to Mexico. And I remember one thing we were shooting, and I remember vividly that we saw a a playback of it. And I was totally lost. I was doing Stan Laurel. I was just kind of, hey, Ollie, I'm doing that thing. And I remember Steve said, yeah, you're doing a little Stan there. His way of saying, maybe don't do Stan there. (laughs) And... um, you know, you're just kind of feeling it out. You're trying to figure it out. And, uh, but then you calm down and you, everyone starts having fun and, and become friends and you're excited to go to work. It sounds like with Second City training, though, you don't, there's no ego about, what, are you saying I'm not being funny? Like it's more of like, let's figure this out and dissect it. No, because the great people are wondering whether they're funny too. I, I've never worked with anyone, uh, and I've worked with amazing people, and they all have, they question themselves. I don't know. Is that good? Do you think that's good? Is that good? Should I do it again? No, it's great. Are you sure? That's, that's a healthier way to do because some of the best takes or the best moments you can have is you kind of get lost in it. And hopefully a great director or a great observer, whoever's helping you, is there to guide you and say, no, that was it. That, that was great. Now, do it again, maybe bring it down 5%, but we're in the right ballpark. And if you don't have that person, then you're not going to look so good. Was there ever a character that you were super, super into that just, for whatever reason, the chemistry with the audience just never worked? You're like, I don't know why I could never make that one work. You know, I, I, I can't really remember so much. I mean, certainly in SCTV... Any character that you'd repeat was because it had worked. Right. Uh, but it was, there was no intention of saying, I'm going to create a legendary character. <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember in SCTV, the premise was there was the Sammy Maudlin show, Joe yes. Clarity. And his, his, his Ed McMahon was William B. Williams, played by John Candy. And now the premise was William got his own show, and it was a bad show. And he... <laughs> and he's... <laughs> stiff and he's bombing and the premise was we needed a cranky old man 
legendary songwriter to come on and tell him how bad he was because he was old and, you know, uncensored. Was this the Bouncy C guy? And it was this, so we created this character, Irving Cohen. Yes. And the, give me a C, a Bouncy C. And, but he was successful on that, so then we do another scene with Irving. Now he was doing three commercials for Tardy Cannon uh, or Bojacks. Uh, you know, we do... We just, if it worked, it was back. That was the blah, 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 and whatever the hell else you want to put That DDD and whatever the hell else you want to put in there at that time. <laughs> but how, I mean, I think there's a thing, as, you know, as, I'm, as, as, as I get older every year as we do as a comic, and I go, oh, my God, what if there's a point? I think there's this fear that, like, comedy is this limited resource, that at a certain point... And your life, I don't know, you just don't care about it much anymore, or you just, or it goes away or something. But you've remained consistently funny always, and that doesn't, that's not always the case. Do you know what I'm talking about with people? I do. I remember on this porch here, in, I remember, uh, I have this odd memory, you know, and it was 1994, and Chris Guest said to me, Martin, do you ever think, does it ever ponder your mind that, we might be entering a time when we're not relevant comedically. Like, our sensibility isn't the sensibility. And it's a really good question. It's kind of what you're saying. And it had never dawned on me. Now, this is 20 years ago, by the way. But it hadn't dawned on me. And I think part of it for me is that, and certainly for Chris, as he's proven, because this is before any of his movies, um, that if you don't care, then you become your own artist. You know, so, you know, no one was saying to Van Gogh, um, blue is very popular, <laughs> and you're not doing a lot of blue in that one. I think that, you know, you, you do what you do, and, and it, maybe it can be in fashion, out of fashion, appreciated, not appreciated, but you're just kind of like that painter, and you're doing your thing, and you're doing it for yourself, and you're doing it to pay rent. I think a lot of it has to do, because it's obviously, it's something that I think a lot of comics think about all the time. At least I do. Um, so I'll just say it's everyone. But, <laughs> just in ter- <laughs> but just in terms of, I think, well, maybe it's because of the motivation behind why you do comedy. Um, you know, and if your reason is just because it's fun, then I would imagine that has a much longer, you have a much longer life with that. Well, it's not just it's fun. It's how you make your living. And it's, you, you can't, you can't fake it. In other words, you can't say, um, I'm going to do this approach, and even though I don't really find it funny, I'll tell people I find it funny because it's a current trend. Right. That will always hit a wall. Right. So you just have to, you know, styles change. You know, you look at slapstick historically, you know, in the 20s, Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin was an art form. By a certain era, you know, 50s, it's considered a low form. And then it's considered art again. I always think with comedy in general, everyone's right and everyone's wrong. You know, it's subjective. Some people love uh, Louis C.K. Some people say, I don't get it. I don't think anyone's a fool there. I think Louis C.K. is a genius, but... Just because someone else doesn't agree with you doesn't mean that they're stupid. It right. means that it doesn't land for them. It's very, very subjective. People think they're funny. You know, they're the, 
They're funny in the car. They're, I, did, I did a funny thing at the party. <laughs> Put on a hat. And, uh, <laughs> and? Was there anything specific about the hat? No, but just, uh, I mean, who wears hats, I don't, right? Well, a lot of people wear hats. I don't know why that would be. Yeah, but you, you know what? You weren't there. I guess yeah. I, and, I, I get it, Chris. I get it. Actually, I was not, there, and I didn't know. Yeah, but the, I think it was the, the angle. <laughs> but the point of it is, so people kind of often have a little bit of pride, a little cockiness about sure. their own funny. They'll say, you know what the problem is with Bill Hader? And I'd love to tell them. Because I'm in accounting, you know. <laughs> so that's okay. I think maybe it's more in that because with stand-up, there's such a, you know, it's such a live and die by the last show you yes, had. Yes, and also stand-up, you know, is different because – now, actually, I don't know this to be true, but it's, this is my theory. If, you, you know, you're following someone and someone's following you – doesn't it seem to make sense that you'd kind of hope that the person in front of you would bomb a little? <laughs> no, actually. Would, oh, really? No, because I, I think it can work both ways. If the person in front of you kind of bombs, and then you can sort of come in and like be the breath of fresh air for the show, that works. But also, if the person in front of you has a great set, the crowd's super friendly and warm. And then at that point... It's, oh, yeah, that's true. It's really, your, it's really yours to lose... So I, I well, the only point I was making is that in in improv, uh, you know, whether it's Groundlings or Second City or whatever, it's it's the reaction can get as big a laugh as the action. Of so course. in other words, your reaction to someone saying something funny can get a bigger laugh than what the guy yeah. punchline said. So you really want your fellow actor to succeed, so you'll look better. Do you feel like you've crafted the perfect? career to suit your personality where you get to you get to do theater you get to do uh you get to sing you get to do uh, characters and yeah i think i think so i mean i think you know i spent my first seven years of my career from in living in toronto and toronto as we say and um you know the, the canadian actors traditionally then anyway were more like the british there was no you didn't work in film or television you know, or, you know, you, you just worked and you worked all over the place and in all the mediums at all times. And I think that I always did it that way. And I've always liked it that way. I, you know, I, you know, I still do it like a school year. I kind of start in September mentally after Labor Day. And by the end of June, I'm ready to go to the cottage, you know. So in that time, as, as, as wide a variety as can be, it's cool for me. So, you know, this year will be like I'm working with John Mulaney on Fox, but then I have this book, but then on December 12th, Inherent Vice opens, the Paul Anderson film, and then on January 7th, I go in to replace Nathan Lane, and it's only a play on Broadway. That's a very interesting year. Oh, wow. That's great. But when you when you sort of trip over a character like Jiminy Glick, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, shit, does it feel like... Do you feel like a prospector and you're like, I've hit a vein? I mean, is it... Is it a little bit. Do you, do you feel him, the excitement yeah. where you're like, oh my God, I cannot wait to put this guy into the world and yeah. see what... Yeah, Well, that was... You know, I was doing a talk show for King World, 99, 2000 that year, and uh, I wanted to go out as, you know, in disguise and go to Farmer's Market in LA and these places. And, and uh, I, I found myself, I'd already, you know... I'd done that stuff a lot. So people were already seeing through the putty nose. But I'd made a movie in uh, 1990 called Pure Luck. Mm -hmm. And in that, I was stung by a bee. And I had this bee reaction. My face would swell up. And uh, 
And I remember I made it with Danny Glover, and Danny Glover looked at me and said, I cannot see you in there. And I thought, oh, that's, we should go for that kind of look. And we just you know, played with wigs. And then I went to the Emmys. And in fact, uh, interviewed people in the Emmys. Just, and this guy, and there was a guy I knew on this, when I grew up uh, in Hamilton. He had a voice that would go high and then low. He was a neighbor. You remember that? Just like the kid from high school. And um, in fact, originally I called him Jeremy Glick. And then when we went back, I looped in Jiminy. I thought oh. Jiminy was a funnier name. And, um, and then I just interviewed people at the Emmys, and then I started doing it. But it was, it was kind of, because some characters I'd done were very written, like Nathan Thurm. I know that. You don't think I know that. Very rhythmic. Grimley was kind of combination. I remember when I first Ed Grimley seen a Saturday Night Live, uh, they said, now the cue cards will be here. And I said, no, no, I actually don't want to read cue cards. And they said, no, we do cue cards here. You know, it's for the camera. We, you, it's live. You do. I said, oh, all right, that's fine. Then I took out my contact lens <laughs> so I couldn't see them, but I didn't tell them because I didn't want to look at cue cards. Um, but uh, Jiminy was just this weird kind of character that I actually didn't know some of the choices. I, that nothing was planned. It was all improvised. And I would even myself see, see myself making, uh, like saying things like, when I'd see the, when we'd edit it back, and I take great umbrage. I'd say, what does that even mean? I've never used that expression. I'm like, you know, Googling that expression, but I've said it as Jiminy, you know. So do you, is it sort of the thing where you go, well, the, you know, as long as you feel like you have the nugget of the point of view, the character will just kind of take over from there. I thought that Jiminy, you know, everyone thought, oh, is it you're, you're trying to get back at interviewers? And so, no, it wasn't that because interviewers had always been nice to me. It was, I was in, that show was in syndicated. And so I, now for the first time I was watching a lot of daytime television and it just made me laugh that there were people, I'm not talking about, you know, Ellen or it wasn't on, Rosie or people like that. Those were cool. But, I'm, but there were a lot of shows on daytime that were kind of morons with power. They were successes. They had staffs that were scared of screwing up the tuna fish order and all that stuff. But they had no real qualification of being on television. <laughs> Other than being And that made per- me laugh that Jiminy would be this legendary guy who had been on for a long time <laughs> and, um, and with opinions. Like once he said to Mel Brooks, what's your big beef with the Nazis? <laughs> <laughs> or he said to Steven Spielberg, when are you going to do the big one? <laughs> the one that connects to the people, you know. And um, the swagger and the, he once said to Edie Falco, she was answering and he went, shh, just because I asked you a question does not mean that I need an answer. <laughs> and that makes me angry. And she was, you know, um, that was the kind of thing that made me laugh. The, the, the moral. So he could have been, like, he would have been, if I had to do a Jiminy Glick movie again, he wouldn't be in entertainment. He'd be in politics. Oh, right. He'd be a member of, uh, not member of parliament, I'm a Canadian. He'd be a congressman. 
Well, I think Perfect. that well, then that should be the next one is that yeah. he decides to run for office. Absolutely, that's possible. I mean, like it's like the idea of uh, you know Alan Partridge as he's just kind of existed in these you know Steve Coogan's character, where he's existed in different types of shows throughout the years. I think that's something that American television is kind of missing, and you could probably do that. Yeah, easily I with mean, Jimmy listen, Glenn. let's if we're just spitballing ideas here. Uh, Netflix election year twenty sixteen. Uh, you shoot it in 2015. It's a it's a series. It's a 10 episode series. Of Jiminy Glick decides to take over Washington. There you go. We got it. Just sign these papers and we'll be Just on about our way. it. Yeah. Oh wow, this that was over here. Yeah. I mean, do you? Is it that simple? I mean, if you have that idea, can you just manifest that? Do you? Th- if you have ideas like that, can, I mean, can yeah. you just make them? Well, you can't make them happen, but you can have someone. Pitch them from your management team. <laughs> <laughs> All the managers get together and yeah. talk about how great it'll be. Oh, my God. But, uh, well, that, as someone who is a pure performer, how have you navigated the the bureaucracy of the business? Because there is a, you do meet some, sometimes you meet people and they're brilliant performers and you're like, oh, this person never p- clicked, what happened? And you kind of get to know them and you're like, oh, yeah, they don't really understand the business part. And it's yeah, I always had smart people. I you know, when I was you know twenty eight, Rawlinson Joffe were the biggest. They had Letterman and Woody and Billy and Robin. And then uh, in the mid nineties, I was my manager was Bernie Brillstein. Yes, and um, and and now I'm still with Brillstein. I mean, it's it's you know you you I I like I, I believe that the buck stops with me. So I'm not someone who I have managers and agents, but I, I, I speak to everybody. Yeah. I'm not like, you know, not wanting to be involved, but it's lonely out there. I think it's great to have, and I'm all over the place. So it's great to have uh, people representing you with great taste and they can just make life a little easier and they can, and I like to feedback, you know, when uh, my brother Michael always used to say, you know, when we would be pitching, I'd be like, have an idea and we'd have an idea and I'd pitch it off everybody and the cleaning lady would come in to change the basket he said do you want to pitch it to Rosa I said yeah, maybe I will <laughs> she has good taste Rosa so I, I like um, hearing the truth from people and I like to you know you never know what's going to happen uh, but at least you'd like to know that going in you had a chance of making it work yeah so if you do something like damages, then what is does your is your brain in the same place as if you were doing a char- a, a completely different character, like a it's comedy just a character? Different character, just a different character, just a different character. But but that was again, you know, damages was third. So those guys are brilliant. The guys who wrote that show, um, Glenn and Todd Kessler and Daniel Zellman, and and they there was a third season of that show, and each season was about one subject, and. The season I did it was the Madoff family, but they called them a different name. And Lily Tomlin was Mrs. Mm-hmm. Madoff, and Len Carrier was Mr. Madoff, and Campbell Scott was their son, and I was their lawyer. And um, the luxury of that is I'd already the show had already been on. It was always already like this insanely great show, Glenn Close and Rose Byrne, and you knew that it, you were in safe hands. So. And it was an interesting way to work because they would give you speeches. They would, like, change. They'd see dailies and change the whole direction of the show from the dailies. Look at the way Marty's looking off like that. Maybe he shouldn't be the bad guy. Maybe he should be the more sympathetic. And they'd rewrite. They'd shift it, you know. And and that had been my history. Even with SCTV, I remember what was brilliant about SCTV is that our executive producer, Andrew Alexander, who still runs Second City, 
knew to trust the creative element of that show. And, and we were going to shoot, I think it was the last show of our season, and sets were being built, scripts had been approved, everything, costumes were made for us, another idea. And Joe Flaherty came in, and he said, you know, I saw a film, Poltergeist, <laughs> and I have an idea, and I think we should scrap the uh, uh, storyline of this last show and do this show. And, you know, other executive producers said, Joe, uh, impossible, too expensive. Uh, and his instinct was to say, yes, sir. And it became the idea that the spirit of classic television was turning on the crap of present television <laughs> and sucking it into the television itself. And we won the Emmy for it. Oh, wow. So, you know. It's nice to know that every generation thinks like, oh, everything's crap now. But in my day, yeah, yeah, it was yeah, like yeah, golden yeah, no. And now yeah. people look back and go, oh, back at the SCTV day. I mean, that yeah, was you can, television. You can never predict the level of crap. <laughs> I mean, I remember seeing the film Network, and everyone was going crazy over it, this idea that uh, a newscaster could have a nervous breakdown, and suddenly it would become great television seeing his breakdown. And I watched it and thought, it's too broad. This could never happen. <laughs> <laughs> now it's television. Yeah. Now it's just wrong television. Wrong as wrong can be. So this is, a, this is, as we're sort of winding down here, uh, this might be an annoying actory question, so I apologize. But it, do you, could you ever play the character of you? Like, could you just play, like, do you, are you, do you know yourself that well? Or do you really feel like, no, it's got to be another, another entity. Could you play yourself? Well, I, it would be um, it'd be tricky. I, I guess maybe because I never did stand up. You know, I think that uh, Mike Nichols used to say that great stand ups are our philosophers, and um, I think there's a reason why Ray Romano and Jerry, Jerry Seinfeld and Louis C.K. Uh, are so brilliant at it, and I think it's because they're used to being their their trump card is themselves. And they just move that to the next. Traditionally, Jack Benny did it. Mm-hmm. Um, they're variations of themselves. But if you're a character actor, as I've been, you're, you like observing odd behavior, and maybe that's what you do better. Do you like being... Oh, Gary Shandling, too. I left him Shandling, yeah. yeah. Do you like being the central character, or is it more freeing to be the side guy that gets to go broader and come in and get the laughs? And it depends what it is. You know, Clifford was the central character. I like that. But I've I've always loved ensemble stuff. I love, you know, I have a joke in my act where it says, you know, in the, in the words of Donny Osmond, always leave the audience wanting less. And <laughs> and I I think that. You know, to have people say, "Gee, I wish he'd been enough. I wish he'd been in that more," is is not a bad instinct. So, do you think that's? Is there some reason for that behind why a lot of the films that you've done haven't there haven't been more sequels? Well, because um, they've been sequels. You know, if you go back to films like Three Amigos, they weren't doing sequels every. If Three Amigos had been released now, there'd be a Three Amigos two, right? Well, but, you probably would have signed the trilogy deal right from the get-go. Yeah, exactly. You'd shoot them all simultaneously. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, it wasn't so much then. But you must get approached now, like, do another one of these, or let's get these guys back together. Let's do this again. 
Yeah, but I think that that's not always a good idea. You know, that doesn't stop people from doing. It. I understand, <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think you know, in certain cases, I don't know. I, I think people would like to see that, see you guys get back together. And yeah, I, I think that. Um, uh, yeah, it's probably better on th- in theory. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my my. Uh, well, this doesn't really apply, but I guess. But anyway, I'll share it, and maybe it'll spark a thought. But you know, my dad was. Uh, my dad was a legendary professional bowler, but he did not pick up a bowling ball for the last probably 30 years of his life. And people would always go, why don't you bowl? Why don't you? You could. And he goes, because the longer I don't bowl, the better I was. Like, ah, that's brilliant. He, he just he knew that he would that it, it just like it would like trying to get a second act out of his thing was not be what people remembered. I think it's always a little daunting too. that's why it's always risky to go back and host Saturday Night Live. Yeah. You know, how many times have you done it now? Uh, I've hosted three times. And when was the last time? It was uh, 2000. Oh, it was December 2012 because it was the day after Sandy Hook. Oh wow! Oh wow! It was that was the Friday, and we did it the Saturday. In fact, I thought we were going to cancel the show. Yeah, you know. And I think uh, I can't believe it's only been three times. Yeah, I've done like walk-ons and things. I'm not counting those. What? I'm, I'm not like. Oh, you got to count those. Oh, I got to count those. Yeah, oh, I don't know. Five, six. There's five, six, yeah, yeah. There you go. Do you ever. Uh, do, you, do you sort of write characters throughout the year and then go, now I have. I need to. No, put I these. don't really start. I, I, you know, I'm a writer who's had to write out of duress, you know? <laughs> like my brother in law, Bob Dolman, is a writer, like a real writer. He wrote Willow. He wrote, you know, Far and Away. He's, a, right. he's always writing scripts and. Banger Sisters and stuff like that, director. I write because I have an assignment. I'm going to host Saturday Night Live. I have to figure out what I'm going to do for the opening. I have to... uh, I did a special couple years for CBC where I literally didn't know what it was except I made the deal. And then I said, i got to figure it out now. So if there's an assignment, uh, that's the way I do it. As far as characters, you kind of, you meet people, and then you, it's like being a kid in school, and you're making fun of your teacher. You meet someone, they have a specific mannerism, you find yourself, you can do them, you know, usually starting off behind their back, and then that becomes a character. And then you do it to their face, and you go, I own your soul. Yeah, like I, I, I did on that Saturday Night Live, I did Larry David, but Larry's my friend, so I had done Larry for a long time. And um, but now I'd never done it professionally, and some people are saying, "Oh, you you never stop creating," you know. <laughs> this has been amazing, and I I am so thrilled and honored to have been sitting in your home. Oh, please, at, at it was my table, joy. Which is we were doing bits. It's a very nice home. We did good. We could see the water. We can see the water. It's we very can. Nice. Um, so we should uh, let people know. Obviously, Mulaney, and then also uh, your book. Uh, I must say... Inherent Vice, December 12th. Inherent yeah. Vice. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, Joaquin Phoenix. PTA. Looks good. Looks real good. Owen Wilson. Reese Witherspoon. Ooh. Benicio De Toro. Oh, Benicio. <laughs> Just a few names. <laughs> Just a few folk. I've heard of some of those people. Yeah. I've heard of them. And by the way, I'm leaving out eight people. <laughs> yeah. You know. A lot of names on that poster. Yeah. yeah. Well, in a PTA movie, you know, it's like... That's true. It's basically no like... Hipper. It's, it's a laugh Oh, Maya movie. Rudolph, of course. Mrs. Yeah. PTA. I love Maya Rudolph. Yeah. Oh, that's right. I always forget that. Yeah. yeah. 
She's a, but your book uh, is not. It's out in. Uh, is it out now or is it it's out, out like, right now? Right now. Yeah, we are number fifteen on the New York Times bestseller list. Congratulations! Oh, premiere. Yes. Uh, do you like the process of writing a book, or is it weird to write about yourself? No, it was. It was um, kind of fascinating. At first, it became like uh, really. Uh, Amy Poehler and I were talking about the fact that it's it's kind of, in one level, the hardest thing you can do. But then you kind of get into it because writing is rewriting. You just keep rewriting it. Even when I'd finished it, and now I was doing it, it's because it's also on tape. Mm-hmm. And uh, even you're doing it, you're reading it, you know, from your, you're reading your own words, and you go, hold on. Uh, yeah, you know what? Can we change <laughs> extraordinary to... Amazing. I wouldn't say extraordinary there. That seems fake. Because you, all you want to do is make it sound like we're just talking. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and you feel like you accomplished that? Are you happy uh, with it? I think so, yeah. Good. I always just think that the process of writing a book is like you spit it all out, and then someone comes back, and they're like, okay, now redo all this. And you're like, what? I already did it once. Well, I mean, I had a great editor at HarperCollins who will suggest, why don't we take that? We don't need that. But to be quite honest... If someone said, oh, we don't like that, and you've got to change that, to such an extent, you'd say, well, you know what? How about I haven't cashed the check yet? <laughs> <laughs> I'd go back to that thing. Because even from SNL then to now, it's, you know, I got the rank covered. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was very nice talking to you. And nice talking with you, man. Anytime you want to, anytime we can help you with anything, Please let us know. What an offer. I'm serious. All Dishes, right. The windows. Anything. We'll come here and, and clean the... Give you coffee. How was that coffee? It was good coffee. Yeah? Strong coffee. Too strong? No, no, no. Just right. Like the way I like it. Yeah. Yeah. I might have put an extra scoop in there. I, jo- you know, I appreciate it. Jonah's, uh, Jonah's basically like a polar bear. Like you can't... It's hard to take him down. <laughs> it, it would take It would take a lot of coffee to, to bring that man. Wow. <laughs> He what? says before a long drive home to East Side. <laughs> yeah, where you pull over. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just, Jonah's pulling off his clothes on Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jonah, too much coffee. Too much coffee. I can swim to Catalina right now. No, you I can't can swim to Catalina. I want you to calm down. I can't. It's oh, I broke some Xanax into that grind, too, so you'll be fine. <laughs> I knew it. Yes. <laughs> and here comes the Xanax. Yeah. All right. Uh, that's the end. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. Thanks, man. Thanks. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. This episode is brought to you by the effortlessly scrumptious bite of Skinny Pop Popcorn. Imagine this. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious kernels. A symphony of just three simple ingredients. Popcorn, sunflower oil, and a sprinkle of salt. No compromise, just pure snacking freedom. And hey, if you're up for a twist... Dive into flavors like zesty white cheddar to sweet and salty kettle. Every bite's a delight, light and oh so tasty. Shop Skinny Pop now.